A man named John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. He published it in 1648, and it is one of the best-selling books uh, in the English language. And I'm, I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have heard of The Pilgrim's Progress? Just by a show of hands. Okay, now, probably less, but how many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, good, a few of you, great. So The Pilgrim's Progress is uh, an, an allegory. So it is a fictional story. Bunyan writes it as if he's having a dream about a man named Christian. And as an allegory, every character and thing in this story has a direct correlation to the Christian life. So the, the, the main character, Christian, represents a Christian, every Christian. And he is on this journey, and he is on his way to the celestial city. So this journey represents his Christian life, the ups and downs of it, the challenges that he faces, the victories, and he is on his way to eternity with Christ. That's what the celestial city represents. And at the very beginning of the book, you meet Christian, and as he starts this journey, you notice something about him. And it's a metaphor I think all of us can relate to. He is carrying on his back a huge backpack a huge, what the text calls of the story, a burden. And he's carrying this all throughout the story. And the burden represents specifically the guilt and consciousness of sin that, pilgrim, uh, that Christian has as a pilgrim. And I, I, what I wanna do is have you think about that for a moment and widen it, not just guilt and consciousness of sin, though that is certainly the most important one, but think about your own life. Can you not easily relate to that illustration of someone walking through life keeled over under the heavy weight of a burden? Every single one of us has walked into this room this morning bearing burdens, right? Maybe it's a, a relational burden as you consider friendships or a marriage or whatever it may be. Maybe it's a financial burden that you're bearing as you're wondering, how am I ever going to pay for this? Maybe it's a, a health burden. Maybe it's a, a parenting burden. Or maybe it is what Christian's burden was, the most important burden to deal with it, which is a spiritual burden, an awareness of our sin and guilt before a holy God. Well, as we come to this chapter this morning in Matthew chapter 11, it's always difficult to parachute into the middle of a book without context, but it's important to know, even though we're just looking, we're just going to look at verses 28 through 30, it's important to know that the context of this chapter and this part of Matthew's gospel is one of burden. In fact, if you have your, your Bibles, you can just uh, flip either the page before, maybe it's the same page, but chapter 11 begins with John the Baptist. He is now imprisoned. He'll eventually be beheaded. And he is under the burden of doubt. He doesn't know if what he believed about Jesus is true. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Are you really the one I thought you were or should we wait for another? As we move on through chapter 11, we see there's also the burden of opposition to Jesus. At this point, Jesus' ministry is not successful by worldly standards. The religious leaders want to kill him. They're growing in their opposition to him. People are turning away. 
There's also the burden of people in this passage in verse 20, right before what we just read, who have rejected Jesus so much so that Jesus says the wrath of God remains on them. There's the burden of God's wrath. And the question of Matthew 11, as we consider these burdens, and the question for you and I as we consider all of the burdens that we carry in here this morning is an important one, and it's this. Is there any relief from these burdens? Maybe that's a question you've asked as you consider difficulties and the burdens of your your own life. God, is there any way for these burdens to be lifted? And the simple yet life-shattering answer that Jesus gives in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 is yes. When we come to Christ, now listen church, when we come to Christ either for the first time or continually as we should, we find eternal rest for our souls. That's what Jesus offers, a removal of these heavy burdens. Not a removal of the circumstances, not a removal of the difficulties that bring about these burdens, but in the midst of them, we can have a deep soul-abiding rest in Jesus Christ. And that is the most freeing thing in the world. And so that's what we see from this invitation from Jesus in verses 28 through 30. We read 25 through 30, but really our focus is primarily verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." So we want to, we're doing something a little different, right? In Genesis, what have we been doing? We've been taking huge passages and trying to jam them into short, maybe not so short sermons, right? Now we're doing the opposite. We're taking one uh, statement from Jesus and we want to mine it to its depths. And so as we do that, here's what we're going to see this morning. We want to see four things. First, we want to see the invitation, come to me. Second, we want to see the recipients, of this invitation, all who labor and are heavy laden. Third, we're gonna see the offer in this invitation, I will give you rest. And then fourth and finally, we're gonna see the motivation of Jesus for this invitation. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. So let's jump right in. The first thing we see, these three words, the invitation, come to me. And notice the first thing about this invitation. It is to a person. You notice that? Might seem easy to miss. But when you and I get an invitation, maybe it's an evite or maybe something in the mail, what is it to? It's to an event. Come to this wedding, come to this baby shower, come to this birthday party. But that's not what Jesus is inviting us to here. He is not inviting us to a moral reform program as if he's some sort of spiritual personal trainer. He's not inviting us to a a political party. Friends, he's not inviting us to a church service or to a denomination. He is inviting us to himself. And that's foundational for us to understand where this rest comes from. He says, come to me. Now, who is this me? Who is Jesus? Not merely a moral teacher, not a social activist. He is fully God, as we see in John chapter 1, verse 
1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he, this Jesus, talking in Matthew 11, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's who this Jesus is. Eternal, Son of God, divine. But he also became a man. He's fully God, but he is also fully human. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or as one paraphrase of that verse says, God moved into the neighborhood. So he's fully God and he is fully man and he is the only way any of us can know the Father. You heard that in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Right before the offer, he says, all things have been handed to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me. Hear what he's saying there. I am God. I am divine. You cannot know God. You cannot be in right relationship with God unless you come, not to an event, not to a group, but to me, the person of Christ. So it's an invitation to a person. But notice also that it is an exclusive invitation. And here's what I mean by that. It's not exclusive in its offer. We'll talk about that in a moment. The offer, the free offer of the gospel is to all. It's exclusive in its object. Meaning, you can't come to him and something else. You can't have Jesus and. It has to be Jesus only. That's what he means when he says, come to me. That means you can't come to him and say, well, yeah, he is, he is one good path among many different paths to God. Jesus doesn't allow that. No, he is the sole object of the invitation. As he says in Luke 14, so therefore if anyone of you, or any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. So this isn't just this sort of nonchalant, yeah, Shalant, come to me if you want, or you, know, you can just add a little of me to your life. No, no, no. He's saying, you must come fully and wholly to me. Come to me. And then lastly, we see this invitation, come to me, is perpetual. This is an ongoing invitation. And I think this is where many of us who have been Christians for a long time, we struggle. Because you, you hear someone, a preacher, or you read this and you say, come to me and I'll give you rest. And you say, oh yeah, I did that. Right? I did that 10 years ago. That's when I became a Christian. And friends, absolutely, that's, that's true. But even though we cannot lose our salvation, even though when we truly believe in him, he will never let us go, we so often drift from Christ that we are to continually come to him. See, there are only two types of people. A lot of us will say, yeah, there's two types of people. There's good people and bad people. Well, that's not how the Bible describes it. The Bible says, listen, there's bad people, there's one type of person, there's bad people, and then under that, we call them, the Bible calls them sinners, and there are unredeemed sinners, and then there are redeemed sinners. And both of those groups need to hear the call 
to come to Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, it, it's, it's a first time coming to Jesus in faith. That's what it means. But if you're here as a follower of Jesus, it's meant to be this perpetual coming to him. Maybe you've been dehydrated before. You know what that feels like? It's not fun. Your, your mouth is dry, even as you're drinking water, you've waited too long, you feel like you just can't get enough water. Well, friends, we become spiritually dehydrated because we drift from the fountain of living water all the time. And what do we need to hear? We need to come to Jesus and come to him continually. So that's what's packed in those three simple words. It's, an, it's to a person, it's exclusive to him, and it's an ongoing coming to him in faith to find spiritual life. Now, who is this for? Again, the invitation is to all, number two. The invitation is to all, but only the weak can receive this. Do you see that in verse 28? We're in the second part now. Come to me, all who what? Labor and are heavy laden. And friends, this is the unique message of Christianity. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other man-made philosophy or religion. Every other philosophy or religion says this. Here's the goal at the top. You can call it God, you can call it wherever. Here's where we are at the bottom of this mountain. Now here is what my religion or my philosophy will do. It's going to help you get from the bottom to the top, right? So as long as you're strong enough, as long as you're smart enough, as long as you jump through these hoops, you're going to get to the goal. In Christianity, in all its honesty, God says, you know what? That's not how it works. In fact, I am at the top of the mountain, but you're actually dead and weary and broken on the bottom of the floor. You've tried to climb the mountain 50,000 times and you barely get up it and you roll back down. So what I have done is I have sent my son and he has actually come down the mountain and he has gathered all you weary and heavy laden sinners and he has said, come to me. The offer is for you. All those burdens you're laboring under. See, religion says, come, labor some more, and you can get to God. And Jesus says, no, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a call to recognize our spiritual weakness. What spiritual burdens are you wearing this morning? There seems to be two primary ways this works, depending on our, our experience and our personality. Uh, one is what we would call legalism. That is, that is saying, okay, I can earn God's grace by being good and obeying. So you know your Bible or you hear what the, the preacher says and you say, here's what I've got to do to obey God. And if I do these things, then I will be right with God. That's what the enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees taught. That's the burdens they put on other people. Maybe that's you this morning. That's, that's how you think it works. You work, and then when God sees your good work, he welcomes you in. Or maybe it's the other side. It's what we could call license. So if legalism is earning God's grace by being good and obeying, license is saying, I can ignore God's grace, I have a license to sin, and I can just pursue sin. And here's what's similar about both of them. Both are attempts by you and I to labor and work 
in our own self-sufficiency to find what only Jesus can offer. So legalism and license gets us nowhere. It's a burden we bear. And Jesus has said, here's the answer. It's not legalism, it's not license. What is it then? It's weakness. Couldn't we sum up this labor heavy laden with recognizing our weakness? In fact, if you look up a few verses at verse 25, look what Jesus says. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Now here, the strong, the wise of this world. And you've revealed them to, and here's the illustration he uses, you've revealed them to little children. For such is your gracious will. And the language here is not just children as in, as in kids, you know, 12 and under. The language here is toddler. And I have, I have a toddler, and I, they're needy. That's all I need to say, right? Jude can do nothing. That's my son's name. He can do nothing apart from us except cause destruction, Right? He needs us to eat. He needs us to sleep. He needs help going to the bathroom. He needs us to be comforted. He is needy. And Jesus says, that is what you must be like in order to receive this invitation. Matthew 18, 3. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus doesn't come and say, okay, let me find the smartest, most sophisticated people with the most social clout, the people who say they've got it all figured out, that's who the kingdom of heaven's for. No, in fact, he says they are blind by their own self-sufficiency. The kingdom of heaven is for those who recognize that they've fallen time and time again. They have nothing in themselves to, to rescue themselves. So like children, they lean wholly upon their parents, they lean wholly in faith upon me. Weakness is the way towards salvation. Today's the 4th of July. This morning, someone probably dressed like a, a, a pilgrim read the Declaration of Independence from the State House as is custom, right? And what is the Declaration of Independence? It's like the world's most famous breakup letter, right? Have you thought about that? I don't want to go out with you anymore. I want to be on my own. I want some time to myself, right? It is a nation saying we want to come out from under this rule. Well, and that's a, it's a good thing. We praise God for our history. But spiritually, what, what God calls us to in the gospel is the, actually the, quite the opposite. It's to, to declare not, depend, not, not independence, but full dependence upon him. It's to say, listen, I've been trying on my own and I have hit rock bottom time and time again. I need Jesus. God, I'm weak. I'm weary. And if that's you this morning, and I think as many of us, the temptation at that moment can be to say, I'm weak and I'm weary. So God, I promise tomorrow I'm gonna try harder. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you labor and you're heavy laden, you are right where you need to be to receive the invitation of Christ. Now you may object, you may say, man, I've, I've denied him so many times. Well, so did Peter. You may say, I've, you, you wouldn't understand how much I doubt Jesus at times. Well, so did John the Baptist. So did Thomas. You may say, well, listen, I've pursued the pleasures of sin my entire life. 
so did the thief on the cross. Or you may say, I'm not sure I understand theologically how this whole Christianity thing works. Well, neither did Nicodemus when he came to Jesus by night. But what did all of those people have in common? Jesus met them in their weakness, and he invited them in. And friends, he does the same for us. So if we want to be recipients of this invitation, we must recognize that we labor and are heavy laden and that we are weak. We must humble ourselves. And then thirdly, we see the offer. So the invitation, come to me. The recipients, all who labor and are heavy laden. Third, the offer. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Still in verse 28. Notice what he doesn't say. I think this is so important for us as Americans. He doesn't say, come to me and I will fix all of your difficult circumstances. He doesn't say, come to me and I will make sure there is no hardship in your life. Some, somewhere along the line, and, and I understand because my own sinful heart can be tempted to believe this too, the American gospel has come to teach that Jesus is inviting us to a life of ease. That's not what he's inviting us to here. He's inviting us to rest within himself. In fact, when we come to Christ, this is so important to be clear about, when we come to Christ, oftentimes it means more difficulty and hardship. It means more broken relationships with families who don't understand. Paul tells Timothy, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So Jesus doesn't say come to easy believism. In fact, we'll see in a moment that he does give us work to do. He offers us something much better. He says, I will give you rest in the midst of all of this chaos. I will do something in your soul that will be so supernatural that when you face the hardest difficulties of life, you will be able to say, glory to God, my joy is in him. That's something much better than a life of ease in this world that will last maybe 80 or 90 years and be over. He is promising something eternal. And here's what's so amazing about this. I have read this passage so many times. It's one of the most common invitations of Jesus. But I never noticed this until this week. G. Campbell Morgan helped me see this, a pastor and commentator. He said the literal translation here is, is not I will give you rest, but I will rest you. Don't you love that? Because he's not saying, come, come over here, and if you want to rest, I'll show you a place where you can rest. He's saying, no, I know that you are spiritually frantic and burdened. I will take you. Morgan calls it a motherly-like love. I will take you like a mother takes a frantic child, and I will rest you. I will rest your souls. So that when you face all of that chaos, when you think of all of those burdens, you can exhale and say, I have Jesus. He's given me rest. He gives another illustration here to help us understand this. Look at verse 29. I will rest you. Then he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, what does that, that mean? Now, yoke was this wooden crossbar that was used uh, in agricultural settings. It was placed upon one or two animals, and it, was, it would pull uh, a plow, essentially. And it was a common uh, illustration in Jesus' day among Jewish writings to talk about the law of God. 
So here's what's happening, more context. There are these teachers who are teaching God's law. It's God's word, it's the Old Testament. But they are putting them on, on God's people as a heavy burden. They're putting them on God's people as a way to obey to earn. So Jesus says in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Jesus comes along and he says, I am going to remove that burden and instead I'm going to put my yoke, a light and easy yoke upon you. Now, before we get to what that means, let's stop and consider what burdens Jesus actually removes. Burdens that we bear. Maybe it's the most important one, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, the weight of guilt and shame. How does Jesus remove that burden? Well, he bears it for us. He bore our shame, Hebrews 12. Maybe it's that burden of trying to work off your sin debt. Well, friends, he paid the debt for us. Or trying to control our lives. Some of you are control freaks like me. You get anxious when things don't go your way. Christ bears that burden by upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is sovereign, not you. Maybe it's anxiety about money. He's our provision and our provider. Maybe it's vainly seeking joy in this world. He is our joy and our delight. Or maybe it's God's just judgment against sin. He has borne the wrath upon himself. He removes those burdens. But there's an interesting way we have to consider how he does this. This is so important. And this is where I want to go back to uh, the Pilgrim's Progress for a moment. And those of you who have read it, I want to hear what you think afterwards. Because there's some controversy about the Pilgrim's Progress. Now here's why. At the beginning of that story... Christian starts his journey by entering the wicket gate. And that represents starting his Christian faith. Jesus is the narrow gate, right? So he starts his his journey. But here's what's interesting. Even after he enters the gate and starts his journey, he's still wearing the pack. He's still carrying his burden. People say, oh, that's strange. So then when does his burden come off? Now here's the controversy. Some people like Charles Spurgeon would say, I love John Bunyan, I've read the book a hundred times, but he's wrong because the burden should have come off when he entered the wicket gate. But the burden actually comes off when Christian comes to the cross of Calvary. Now listen from the, the book itself. He says, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in till I came here. What a place is this? Is this place the beginning of my bliss? Is this where the burden falls off my back? Is this where the ropes bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed grave, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Now here's why I think this is so important. Bunyan's telling his own spiritual story here. He became a Christian. He knew Jesus was the only way and died on the cross for his sins. But here's what happened. What happened to him happens for so many of us. It took him a long time to understand that not only are we welcomed into the kingdom, but at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus removed those burdens for us. So some of us, listen, some of us have been following Jesus for a long time, but we're still bearing the burden because we've yet to understand fully what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. 
1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So he bore the burden of our sin and then in exchange, we get the burden not of performing to earn, not of controlling our lives. That's his burden. What do we get? We get the burden of his righteousness. It's a light and easy burden because he's dealt with our greatest problem. Think about it. The greatest problem you have if you're in Christ has been dealt with. You will spend eternity with King Jesus. Sin no longer has a hold on you. That means you can look at life's problems, however difficult they are, and you can, in a holy way, I don't mean ignore them, but in a holy way, you can exhale and shrug your shoulders and say, I trust the Lord. And he gives us this new yoke. He doesn't just remove the old one. He gives us a new yoke. It means we have work to do, don't we? We are to obey. We are to love others. We are to live on mission. We are to pray. We are to study God's word. We are to live holy lives. But as the Apostle Paul says, no longer are his commands burdensome to us. They're joyous privileges because Christ has dealt with our greatest burden. That is what he offers us, rest. And that rest we can begin experiencing now, but the joy of the Christian life is as we look forward to the end, there will come a day when there will be no more interruptions of that faith and that rest for those who believe. And then lastly, so that's the invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Number four, what's the motivation of this? Verse 29. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is why. We might say, why such a gracious offer? And I I do, church, I pray that that is your question. I pray that we don't think, well, of course Jesus loves me. Our thought should be, how could the king of the universe in his holiness and righteousness and beauty look on a sinner like me and set his love upon me? That is incredible. And here he tells us why. Because it's at the core of who I am to weak, heavy-laden sinners like you. He is gentle and lowly in heart. This is the portrait of Jesus. This is what he gives to us. In fact, some of us are reading Gentle and Lowly very slowly this year on Zoom. We have copies of that book at the back. It's essentially a full book treatment on this passage. It's also a way to trick our church into reading the Puritans. And I succeeded. But if, it is a free book. And, and friends, that book will bless your soul. And so please take it if you want to hear more and learn more and have a more sustained study of this. But notice this. This is not just one time. This isn't like you caught Jesus on a good day in Matthew 11. He's feeling pretty good. So he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. We know that's not true because in the previous passage, he said, woe to you who reject me. God's wrath is coming. But to those who are weak, he says, this is who I am. Here's an exercise. In the next couple weeks, read the Gospels. Note every time the compassion of Jesus is explained. The word for compassion in the New Testament, splagnizomai, it means being moved to the gut, moved to the bowels. Now, bowel movement means something different in our day, but that language means Jesus feels this deep to his core. 
Or consider John 11 when he weeps with Mary over the death of his beloved friend Lazarus. This is his heart. Or Matthew eleven nineteen, just a few verses earlier where he is charged with being a friend of sinners and he owns that title. Or Hebrews 4, 15, where we're told that he sympathizes with weak sinners like us. Or Hebrews 12, 2, that tells us he endured the cross joyously for weak sinners like us. Or Hebrews 5, 2, that says he deals gently with the ignorant and wayward like us. And 1 John 2, 1, when we sin, he is our advocate. Why? Why is he all of those things? Because at the core of who he is, he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, yes, he will judge the wicked. We see that in verse 22 here. But the weak, humble, repentant sinners who cling to him, not who try to earn, but who cling to him, he will always, always be gentle and merciful. That means in your sin and weakness, you have no need to pause in coming to him. You have no need to wonder, is he gonna forgive me again? Is he going to welcome me again? Yes, he will. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Now, as we tie all of this together, what, what, are, what are the takeaways for us? Now, there's, there's really two primary ones. There's only three commands in these few verses. You notice that? Come, take, and learn. In those first two, I think we can sum up by saying, believe in Jesus. To come and take, to come to him and believe, to come to him and take his yoke is to place your faith in Christ, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time. For those of you who do not believe, to, to, to be welcomed into eternal life is to come to him in faith, to let go of whatever you're clinging to and receive with empty hands of faith. Jesus Christ. To those of you who are weary Christians, you are not coming unto salvation for the first time, but you are coming afresh to Jesus. So come, take, believe and receive. And then secondly, notice what he says right before he says gentle and lowly. He says, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. Not only are we to receive this Christ and come to him, We are also to, I love this, we are to learn from him so that we may live likewise to the world around us. And friends, this this kind of faith is attractive to the world. Yes, there will be opposition. Yes, there will be people who, who reject the gospel and persecute the church. But there is something about Christians who face all of life's guilty, uh, difficulties, with a sense of ease and peace that's supernaturally attractive to a watching world. So Jesus says, not only receive me, but learn from me so that you too can be gentle and lowly in heart, so that you too can be meek and humble as you take my gospel to those around us. And as we close, I want to just read. Charles Spurgeon has one of the best sermons on this passage. I was tempted to just get up here and read that but that's, you can't do that. You gotta prepare your own sermons. But I wanna read the section on this, this application as we close. He applies this to our lives in such a clear, crisp way. Here's what he says. The lowly heart says, not my will, but thine be done. Let God be glorified in me. It shall be all I ask, rich, poor, 
sick or in health, it is all the same to me. If God the great one has the glory, what matters where such a little one as I may be placed? He goes on, the lowly spirit does not seek after great things for itself. It learns in whatever state therewith to be content. If it be poor, never mind, says the lowly one. I never aspired to be rich. Among the great ones of this earth, I never desired to shine. If it be denied honor, the humble spirit says, I never asked for earthly glory. I seek not mine own, mine honor, but his that sent me. Why should I be honored, a poor worm like me, if nobody speaks a good word of me? If I get Christ to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's enough. And if the lowly hearted have little worldly pleasure, he says, this is not my place for pleasure. I deserve eternal pain. And if I do not have the pleasures here, I shall have them hereafter. I am well content to abide my time. Our blessed Lord was always of that lowly spirit. And he calls us to learn from him, from him to be likewise. So when we come to Jesus, friends, we find an eternal abiding rest for our burdened souls. So let, let's come to him. Let's take his yoke and let's learn from him that we may receive our gentle and lowly Savior and also live like him toward others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portrait of Jesus. We thank you that he did not look on us as he could have done in his justice and said, depart from me. But instead, he has looked upon us in our weakness, in our sins, in our struggles, in our weariness. And he has said, come. He's invited us. So Father, I pray that your spirit, because only your spirit can do it, God, your spirit would stir in us the strength to respond to that invitation. Whether we're new to the faith, whether we have yet to believe, whether we've been following you for years, may we afresh recognize our weaknesses, our burdens, and may we come have you remove them from us and find rest for our souls. God, we thank you for the cross where our burdens are removed, where Christ bore them for us. And we thank you for the empty grave that we too may be raised to walk in the newness of life. And God, we give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.